The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by Medtronic. Medtronic is dedicated to the pursuit of life-transforming health tech. From AI to robotics and beyond, we're reinventing what's possible, and we're just getting started. Visit Medtronic.com to learn more. LinkedIn News. From the news team at LinkedIn, I'm Jesse Hempel, and this is Hello Monday. It's our show about the changing nature of work and how that work is changing us. Sheena Iyengar teaches a popular course to Columbia's MBA students. It's called Think Bigger, and it challenges them to revise what they believe about themselves. Many of them do walk into the class convinced that either they are creative and it comes easy to them, or that they're not creative and there's very little hope for them. Sheena told me that when I had her into the studio, and I stopped the conversation. Because it just rang so true. Answer this question with the very first word that comes to mind. Don't think about it at all now. Ready? Are you a creative person? Now I know the answer for myself. I'm creative-ish. It's a thought I've nurtured since the seventh grade when my art project was good, but not nearly as wild and wonderful as Diana Dunn's. I remember she was left-handed and I was right-handed and I thought, maybe that's the secret? Like, my point is this. These beliefs get cemented early and they don't serve us. What's more, Sheena says they're beside the point. Everyone is creative. Anyone can innovate. Anyone can come up with new solutions to hard problems. This is what Sheena's students learn during her course. They're surprised by how far they've come in so little time. They're surprised also that it's actually not something that works like magic, that it is something that you can actually take a structured step-by-step process to and see progress in real time. Sheena has spent more than a decade now developing a straightforward framework for how to innovate. There are plenty of traditional approaches to this, of course. But Sheena takes issue with the methods that we've all used and relied on for the last century. Concepts like design thinking and brainstorming. Sheena says these approaches don't serve us. Her new book carries the same name as her course, and it's an invitation to all of us. Think bigger. Here's Sheena. Brainstorming was invented in New York by an advertising agency, BBDO, and it first came out in 1938. Wow. So just think about that. Um, When you need an idea, what do you do? You either hope that it'll come into your head like magic when you're taking a nap or going on a jog, or when you've run out of time, what do you do? You go do a brainstorm, and the brainstorm was invented in 1938, and we have not in innovated on the very method of innovation since 1938. I think brainstorming is useful for the purpose that it was originally intended for. It was created by the head of an advertising agency who discovered that every time he presented to his team an idea, all his employees would nod their heads and say yes. And so he wanted to actually have far more interaction, far more discussion, far more information sharing. So he said, okay, well, we're going to have a set of rules for conversation, defer judgment, build on the ideas of others, stay focused, go for quantity. And so when you put those rules into place, 
It's wonderful dinner conversation. Any of us that apply those rules will have a great cocktail party or a great dinner conversation. And it's actually really good also for coordination of tasks. Like if you know how to do one thing and I know how to do another thing and the other person knows that another thing, bringing us all together and we share what we know, we can coordinate better. The problem comes in when you use this as a method for creating a new idea. Right. It's not good for that. For lots of different reasons, it's going to create all kinds of cognitive biases. And we've actually known that brainstorming is a biased uh, method uh, since the 1990s. I don't know about you, but I've leaned on brainstorming pretty hard at times. Yeah, I know it's not perfect, but it's been the start that I've had for things for years. If I'm going to toss that out the window, well, I need to replace it with something solid and useful. Sheena's been developing her alternative framework, and it has six steps. So step one is to choose the problem. You know, as Einstein once said, if I had an hour to save the planet, I would spend the first 55 minutes thinking about the problem and the next five minutes thinking about the solution. It is really important to choose the problem that you're going to solve for carefully it has to be something that's doable. It has to be something that if you were to solve, you could further build on that and iterate on it. And so that's really key. We often take what the problem is to be self-evident. And in fact, 72% of companies fail because they end up solving for the wrong problem. So you really want to spend your time thinking through what exactly is that problem you're trying to solve. So the next step builds off of the first step, which is break it down. So we often think there's just one problem, but in fact, most problems are made of several different pieces, right? So any problem, whether it be a, a uh, startup, whether it be a large organization and it's a entrepreneurship problem, you want to take that problem and break it down into its highest priority components. So you talked a little bit about Jeff Bezos when you, mm -hmm. when you discussed this. How did he break his problem down, so to speak, in order to begin to, to wrap his mind around how to create something new. So Bezos was in this position where he recognized that there was this new technology that was hitting our world called the internet. And if anything, I would say he's a great example of both step one and step two, because he understood that even though there was this cool technology that could be used for so many things, he spent a lot of time trying to think through exactly what problem do I want to use this technology for that it could solve well and that it could potentially really be scalable. And he ultimately lands on a retail product, books. And then once he lands on that, he then breaks it down as well in order to use this platform to do retail, what do I need to be able to do well? Well, I need to find a product that is non-perishable. I need to find a product that if I mail it to you, I can get it to you in a reasonable amount of time and I will actually make a profit. Um, and so this process of identifying his space being retail and then breaking it down leads him to the essentially the product of, well, let me try creating a startup that will start by selling books. Now, one of the things we often forget, of course, 
is that he really did just start with books. It wasn't the everything store to begin with. So, Sheena, you you hit upon a problem and then you break it down and then you break it down and then you break it down until you get a subset to a subset that is solvable in the case that you uh, gave books. How do you know when you've broken the problem down far enough? Well, you're never going to break down a problem to every single component, right? It's just that most problems have a bazillion subparts to them. So really what you want to do is you say, okay, what's the problem I'm trying to solve? And you get the full list of all potential causes of it. And now you categorize them. And now you say, okay, what's the three to five, maybe six different most important or the biggest chunks? Those are really the things you're going to try to solve for. And if you have a solution that solves for those, say, five important subparts, and it solves for those about 80 to 85%, then I think you've got a good breakdown. Mm -hmm. One of the mistakes people make is they either make their breakdown too vague, in which case it's not really testable, or they make it so that they only put in subparts that are so easy to measure and are easy to do that even though they can solve for it, it's just too minimal. It, it doesn't do enough. Right. And so they avoid the harder subparts. Yeah, that last part resonates with me. Uh, you know, try to solve for the things that you can measure sometimes works against you um, because then you're not. Well, you're solving for the littler weeds. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So then we move on to step three, which you you frame as compare once. Compare wants, yes. You know, most of the time we have this debate that we should only make choices in a rational way or we should only use our heart because our heart never lies. Right. And as somebody who's, you know, studied choice and I'm a cognitive scientist, I would say that rather than trying to fight what our natural tendency is, actually you need emotions and you need information gathering. You just don't want your emotions to clutter your information gathering. Right. So before you do information gathering, you identify what those emotions are. So if I were to find the perfect solution, how do I want it to feel? Not what are the details of it. It's how do I want it to make me feel? Those are the emotions that are anyway going to dictate your preferences. Let's get those out there up front. Yep. Yeah. Because that ultimately will serve as your selection criteria. In the book, the example that I use is Bill Gates. Right. Um, and Bill Gates, because he understands what his wants are, that you know he wants what he's created being the software to be universal. And in the process, he wants to get money too. So he wants it to be universal and he wants to be famous and he wants to make a lot of money. And when it's not working for him, when he's work, when his software is being attached to Altair, initially he gets upset um, because he feels like people are using his software and, and not paying him because it's being pirated. But then later when he realizes wait, I am getting what I want. Everybody's using my software. They're just not using my software on this machine. 
all I have to do is detach my software from this one machine that people don't like, then I actually have what I want. And it was that insight that actually enabled him to become the success story that he did. It's a great example. Um, and so, so then we move into step four. Step four is this idea of searching in and out of the box, right? Yes. So in this step, you search for tactics to solve each sub-problem of that draft problem. Yes. I wonder if you might talk to us a little bit about the Trotter matrix. Oh, cool. So Trotter is one of my heroes. One of the real secrets to Jack Welch's success and how he grew GE so tremendously during the 90s was because of Lloyd Trotter. Lloyd Trotter was the first African-American to be hired by General Electric and he created something that came to be called the Trotter Matrix. He was, uh, for the longest time, in charge of manufacturing and all the, the plants. And he would uh, discover that certain plants were really good at some things, but not so good at other things, and vice versa. And so what he began to do is he created a system by which best practices from one plant to the next would be transferred mainly through this sort of coaching session. So if plant A was really good at managing the cost of inventory and plant B was weak at that, then plant A would coach plant B on that. And if plant B was really good at, at efficiency of creating products better than plant A, it would teach plant A on that. And eventually when Jack Welch notices his tremendous growth, he then invites Lloyd Trotter to help him and Steve Kerr manage their retreats that were held in Crotonville, New York, where they would have leaders of all the various businesses that at that time made up GE. At that point in time, GE was a true conglomerate. They had businesses that did appliances to financial services, to making uh, TV soap operas, and so on and so forth. And so what would happen at these uh, retreats is that the various business leaders would say, hey, this is something that keeps me up at night. This is a problem that I'm trying to solve for. And it would be, say, a business leader in appliances who would say that. And then somebody in financial services would say, well, I have an analogous problem and here's what we did. Yep. And so what you're doing is you're sharing best practices across industry, but still under the same company. And in the process, all of them are getting better. Right. And you have the wonderful ability to take ideas that feel narrow and expand them and apply them to other fields. Of course, GE was not just any company in the early 20th century. It was the company. It was it was the company to grow your career at and to solve biz, big business problems at, right? Sure. It was like it was like the Apple or the Google of that time. Yeah. Well put. In that sense, it was actually more diverse than both Apple and Google. After Jack Welch stepped down as CEO, they sort of abandoned this entire process and much of the company was sold off. So they really they don't do that anymore. You've just heard four of Sheena's six steps for coming up with new ideas. Stick around for the rest of the framework after the break. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. 
In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. And we're back. So far, Sheena has encouraged us through four steps of her innovation framework. We've chosen a problem. We've broken it down. We've compared once and we've searched in and out of the box. That brings us to step five, choice mapping. Choice mapping asks us to look without judgment at all the options open to us. So choice mapping is the alternative to brainstorming. So with brainstorming, I say I have a problem and we get in the room and we just all start throwing out whatever ideas comes to mind to see which idea people sort of like. With choice mapping, what we say is, here's our problem. You know, how do I create a career for myself given these skills that I currently possess? And now what I'll do is we now have different tactics that we've already created, right? Because we already did step four. So in a typical choice map, you, let's say you had a three by three, um, you can create about 27 solutions, unique solutions. You had a five by five, you can create 3,125 different solutions. Here are my skills and here are the different domains in which these skills are useful. I now take that knowledge that I have gathered, all those information bits, And so now people as individuals take those information bits, line them up in their head and ask themselves to imagine, what could I create if I were to take these bits? What could I become? And so each individual generates multiple solutions. And by having different individuals look at the same information bits, no two individuals create the same solutions. So if you have five people, you can actually generate a lot more solutions by um, not only having them see the various information bits, but also having them do the combining separately from one another. And five people is sort of what the ideal number is, right? Five is a good number. You usually want to avoid even numbered groups. You usually want to do three or five. Seven gets a little too big. Three is slightly too small. Sheena, what's wrong with even numbered groups? What happens when you have an even-numbered group is these two people believe in this and these two people believe in that, and you have a split, and neither side is really going to put in much thought into the why they believe in what, because there's no tie splitter. Right. If you have an odd-numbered group, everybody is forced to explain why they propose what they propose. That's why you would also never want to have a Supreme Court with an even-numbered people on it. Uh, That's interesting to think about, Sheena. Is it sort of that underlying drive to win, even even when there's not a thing to win, so much as a set of ideas to expose? It's not even just winning. I mean, you presumably have an emotional reason why you believe what you believe or think what you think. Yeah. 
And until you're forced to have to think about an alternative that's a challenge to your thought process, you're probably not going to do it. You may not even realize that you're set in your belief systems. But nevertheless, five is the right number. And as I think about this aspect of it, um, this essentially pairing together your subparts to see where the meat is, where the new ideas are, it actually makes me think a little bit about ChatGPT. And I'm wondering how you think about where and how generative AI may play a role in this to to be an assistant to problem solve? So I think there's a lot of potential. I don't know if it's going to be chat GBT, but I do think there is a role for, for AI tools to help create an assistant for us sure. uh, to be creative. And when I say creative, I don't just mean making art. I mean, creating solutions for the workplace, creating, you know, giving you uh, a tool by which you can generate more ideas. And I don't think that takes away from your ability as a human to be creative. I think if it'll, if anything, it will expand your potential. We've been through five of Sheena's six steps here. Now, when I asked her to explain the sixth, which she calls the third eye, Sheena prompted me to do a visualization exercise with her. And it illustrated the sixth point beautifully. So why don't you close your eyes? Okay. And imagine a dog wearing pants. Okay, so so now tell me what your dog looks like. Um my dog is wearing pants. Yes. He's white and shaggy with a brown spotch on his head. Okay. Now where are the pants? The pants are on his hind legs, which poses a problem with his tail. Okay. So when I pictured the dog, it was a golden retriever and the pants were on the front legs. Uh-huh. Yeah. The, the point of the third eye is that when we have an idea, we think it's a great idea. and We can't wait to tell people. And then we tell the idea. Isn't that a great idea? And we're waiting for the other person to say it's a great idea. But actually, it's not an idea yet. Hmm. Because it's all it is is something you have in your head. And so the first thing you have to do when you have an idea is figure out how to describe it so that other people see it the way you see it. And interestingly enough, the third eye is not just about creating accuracy in the way you see it so that it's aligned with the way I see it. In the process of you telling me this other kind of a dog and that you put the pants on the back, you've now given me some new interesting things to think about. So maybe I might change my golden retriever and have him have his pants on the back legs. Yeah. And now I'm going to think about how it might affect the tail. So there is that, that last step when you're going outside of yourself to gather input from others. But the way I have you gather input from others is not by asking people, hey, do you like what I'm saying? But it's by literally practicing the third eye, me describing something to you and then learning how you envision it. As we neared the end of our time together, I was plagued by this question that I'd really had since we first sat down. It's so important to get the problem that you're trying to solve right, right? 
So how do you make sure that you've articulated that right problem? So you're going to keep iterating on that problem and the definition of that problem until the very end. It's like the thesis statement of a dissertation. It's like that marketing campaign. You're going to keep iterating on it until the very end. And where you need alignment is between the problem you're trying to solve and what your wants are. So that you have to keep asking yourself, if I were to solve this problem and in the way I've worded it, does it have the ability to give me these feelings that I said I wanted to achieve? Hmm. Right. Sheena, is there any room in this framework for ideas like intuition? Intuition is functioning in a very important way in three parts of this. First, it's intuition that's driving your wants. That is not an act of reason. It's an act of intuition. Mm -hmm. After you've generated solutions through choice mapping, the way you pick which one of those unique solutions that you've generated is through intuition. Mm. And then finally, your third eye, that ability to learn from what others are seeing, that's another way in which your intuition is absolutely involved. I don't believe in suppressing intuition. I just believe that we should take advantage of what intuition is good at and use it for that. And then we should take advantage of what we're, of the way in which we can best organize and structure information so that in the ways in which we are good at reasoned analysis, we take advantage of that too. Innovations are novel combinations of existing ideas. That's what it comes down to. Every new thing is a perfect combination of old ideas seen in fresh light. One of Sheena's very favorite examples of innovation, it's the Statue of Liberty. She tells this great story at the beginning of the book about a bike ride that she takes. She takes this ride a lot of mornings down the west side of Manhattan. She rides with a friend because Sheena is blind. In the early morning hours, they fly down the west side all the way to the tip of Manhattan, where Sheena remembers from her early childhood days, where she could still see just a bit, what Lady Liberty looked like. She loves what it stands for and how beautiful it is. And she tells the story of where the idea for Lady Liberty came from. I love Lady Liberty. She's always been a real source of inspiration for me. She stands for hope and the ability to achieve any dream we have and that everybody gets a chance. The big question that I ask at the very beginning of the book is, well, where did the idea of Lady Liberty herself come from? We often hear the story of all the challenges that the maker of Lady Liberty had to go through in order to build her and place her in the harbor that she's in. But it still never answers the question, where did Frederick Bartholdi get the idea? And it's when you look back in history, her size and her basic structure comes from the colossal statues guarding the ancient Egyptian tombs. Her pose comes from a very famous nude that was hanging hanging, um, in the French museums at the time, 
La Varité, the Lady of Truth. Her crown and her name comes from the Roman goddess Libertas, which was also on every five franc coin at the time. And the face of Lady Liberty is that of the artist's mother. So Lady Liberty is a new combination of very familiar pieces from his experience of the time. Right. Now, it is a sum of familiar pieces for him, and yet the whole has come to mean so much more than the mere sum of those parts that I just described. Right, right. And that is the new idea. And that's a real innovation. That was Sheena Iyengar, author of the new book, Think Bigger. To learn more about her work, visit her online at SheenaIyengar.com. And now it's time for one of our new spring segments. This week, we have a quick tip. And here to share a quick tip is our producer, Sarah Storm. Hey, Sarah. Hey, Jesse. So fun to have you in the studio. I love it. I know. Me too. And listen, our latest tip, well, actually, I was the one who sent this one to you and said, Sarah, I think this one is it. It comes from <laughs> Belinda Griffin. Belinda writes, I just finished listening to your episode with Dr. Lisa Orbe Austin on thriving in the workplace by overcoming both imposter syndrome and perfectionism. Something that Dr. Lisa quoted her husband and co-author as saying rings so true to me. The professional is personal and the personal is professional. That is an important concept to keep in mind when building a safe work culture. Thank you for having her on. I love that Belinda referenced Lisa Orbe Austin because Sarah, Lisa is like OG on this show. Yeah. And that's because people love what she has to offer. Yep. Yep. And and hearing, like, reading what Belinda, what stuck out to Belinda just resonates with me. As a, Like, we've talked about imposter syndrome before and perfectionism. And it's like, yeah, I, I see you. Yeah. I see you and I'm right there with you. Right. And I know that that's true for listeners, too, because every time we so much as post about it on LinkedIn, we get voluminous reactions. And yep. You know, this this is this is and continues to be a, a pain point for our, all of our listeners. And by the way, uh, men, here's looking at you because, as Lisa will tell us, imposter syndrome does not belong solely to women. It is the purview of all genders, male, female, and non-binary. It's like a terrible party gift that you just get when you enter the work. You get the potential for it when you enter the workplace. Like, <laughs> welcome, welcome to capitalism. Enjoy. <laughs> so listen, we just heard a great conversation with Sheena. Mm -hmm. I think that she left me thinking so much about creativity and where new ideas come from. And now I want to ask our listeners, uh, Give us your thoughts, your quick tips, your reactions. What is this strike in you? Look, if you want to be on the show, Sarah, what should they do? They should email us at hellomondayatlinkedin.com. They could send a voice memo. They could send text to hellomondayatlinkedin.com. That's hellomondayatlinkedin.com. That's hellomondayatlinkedin.com. I love that. You all heard it. Send us a note to hellomondayatlinkedin.com. And enough of that. Okay. All right, Sarah. Listen, uh, office hours, which yeah. we will have you here for because you come to office hours every week. Um, let's do it. We're going to do it Wednesday afternoon at 3 p.m. Eastern, just like we always do. What's our topic for this week? We're going to talk about how we innovate and what frameworks we feel attached to and what new frameworks we might be willing to consider. I just want to say... The word innovate has always annoyed me a little bit because it feels like corporate jargon. 
Um, and there's something really powerful just underneath it, which is freaking creativity, which yeah. is just coming up with new stuff, right? Yes. Yeah. And I really, I really appreciated the way that Sheena talked about it being a process and not like magic because it does, I think, sometimes feel like magic. So listen, come talk about that with us. Uh, Wednesday afternoon, 3 p.m. Eastern. We'll be live on the LinkedIn news page. And of course, if you would like us to send you the link, Sarah, where can they email? Shockingly, it's Hello Monday at LinkedIn.com. All right, folks. Hello Monday is a production of LinkedIn News. Sarah Storm produces our show. It's engineered and mixed by Asaf Gadron. Our theme music was composed just for us by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Lolia Briggs, Wallace Truesdale, Kanaya Rogers, and Michaela Greer help us generate new ideas each week. Enrique Montavo is our executive producer. Dave Pond is head of news production. Courtney Coop is head of original programming. Dan Roth is the editor-in-chief of LinkedIn. I'm Jesse Hempel. I'm Sarah Storm. We'll be back next Monday. Thanks for listening.